bit unexpected and odd. Um, but the day is going to be lovely and everybody should be out doing their garden or going out and visiting gardens or doing something garden-oriented. So, yes, that's what we all should be doing today. Absolutely. What about you? Well, at last I've put sandals on. I thought it was never going to happen. <laughs> oh, dear. Thought... It has been quite a winter in some respects, hasn't it? Well, it's been cold. It's been mm. really... And when you think it's been the hottest winter in Australia ever, so... All those statistics must have been dragged right down because we've been so cold. Mm. So one hates to think how hot it's been up north. Mm. Mm. Yes, well, it certainly has been cold. I mean, I've had things frostbitten this year that hadn't really been touched before. Um, and But it's been interesting because some things that have been in the ground a long time that are a bit frost tender because I'm always one of those people who are in zonal denial and keep planting the things I probably shouldn't. Um the, the older the plant gets, the more woody it becomes and therefore the more it seems to be able to cope. And I was pruning back the dead wood out of my Iachroma grandiflora the other day um, and I was thinking about it and there's all these dead twigs on the top, but the main branches and everything are fine. And uh, it wasn't that many years ago it used to get knocked off at ground level. Mm. Oh. And yet it was a cold winter this year uh, and it's only the, the twigs on the end that got knocked back and so it's already shooting and it's already sending some flowers because if it gets knocked back to ground level, it starts flowering about the end of autumn mm, uh, of because by the time it sends up all that massive growth, it, it just doesn't get settled down to flowering. But if it's got lots of old wood on it, uh, then it starts flowering early and it just keeps going right through the season for me. So this year I'll have masses of big long blue trumpet flowers on my Iachroma and for those who don't know it, it's sort of a bit like an angel trumpet except smaller flowered thinner a yes. thin angel yeah trumpet. yes it's a very yes it's a very it's probably an angel's piccolo or something i don't know what it is <laughs> but anyhow it's very fine uh, leaves that look similar to the angel's trumpet the brugmansias uh and these tubular flowers and iachroma means um, violet flowered and so most of the species that we know of are purple or blue but you can get white ones and there's, there's an orange one in there's the an botanic. orange one yeah uh, which is lovely uh, i find that even slightly more frost tender than the blue ones um, and I managed to kill the white one in the frost a couple of years ago. So. Well, the only thing that got really frosted for me was a heliotrope. Mm. Got really knocked. One. I've got about five heliotropes around the garden. Only one Isn't got knocked. But um, that was Because what happens with me is the, I get the frost, but mm. it just rolls down the hill. Mm. So I'm saved from it. Yeah. And I suppose as soon as you get a bit of a breeze coming from any direction, it just well, dissipates it. There One year there was a really bad frost in the valley and everybody lost their grapes around mm. me and I didn't lose mine because it just rolls mm-hmm. down the hill. Mm. And I remember that from when I was in Britain. We used to, you know, people were taught to plant in a particular way in Britain. You'd plant something like conifers down running towards each other and then leave a gap and the frost would hit the conifers roll down the hill and then go through the gap and that way mm. you could actually get it out of your out of your garden. Mm. Mm. It's, it's intriguing and I, and I wonder really if the, um, the um, grape farms have um, got particular strategies like that. You know, mm. like, I mean, I know some of them use enormous fans, don't they, yes, to and, try and yeah, dissipate and that frost. And They have those frost cannons and all yeah, sorts of things yeah. that they use to, to try and stop the frost. And I guess with a valuable crop like grapes, uh, you can you will spend money to try and deal with it. In a garden, it's a slightly different kettle of fish. And if I had a frost cannon in my garden, I think all my neighbours would be a little annoyed. <laughs> 
<laughs> just don't know why. Yeah, you know, well, it is normally quite a peaceful, quiet neighbourhood, except when I get out there talking. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so we don't want to make too much noise. So no. we'll try and keep it down. But, yeah, so it has been an interesting winter. Um, uh, but every year is an interesting year, really. I mean, there's always something you can be learning, some, some little something you didn't realise before that shows up in a particular season. Um, and different plants are responding in different ways. And... Uh, I just keep planting things I shouldn't have, which is sort of fun. Um, My garden has turned out to be a garden that is absolutely wonderful in winter. Mm. I got back on the 1st of August from two months away and was dying to get into the garden, a bit dreading what it would be like, Mm. and it was just beautiful. Mm -hmm. There was so much stuff already that was in flower. It's interesting because the camellias didn't flower in when I lived in London. They didn't flower in winter. They flowered in spring. Mm. But mine come out in winter. Mm. And so the camellias, and there's so many of the Australian plants are in flower in winter. I was going to say, when I came up, it was just an, mm. already a mass with flowers, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah, it's fantastic. The only time it looks really sad is in February. Yes, mm. when it's that really hot. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I just give up. I couldn't care less about February. I just pretend it doesn't. I mean, I feel terrible. The first sign of a 40-degree day and I go to bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. and we can get out of it and our poor plants. Yeah, poor plants yeah, can't. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm already out there, you know, making sure that all the bird baths up the driveway are filled for the little birds yeah. and, and everything. I just, yeah, I think that's so oh. important this time of year already. But when you see the agapanthus melt, you know, you know that life's not I worth living. I have never seen an agapanthus melt. Well, they, they did, they did. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, that, yes. that year of the fires, my agapanthus melted. Mm. It yes, I saw it too. They mm. just, they just sort of, they, well, melting is actually quite a good term for it because they just turn to mush. Dissipate, and, yeah. And they, you know, I mean, they come back. You can't. They looked like kill the it. pineapple lily when it was finishing. Mm. You know, just lying around and squishy. Well, I was busy melting plants yesterday. I got out my uh, flamethrower weeder for the first time. Oh, wow. And had a play around with that. And boy, oh, boy, does that uh, get things going. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds to me like you might be enjoying this thing far too much. Uh, I I was in the end. I was very, very nervous to start with. Will it kill my blackberries? It won't, will it? Um, It wouldn't kill them, but it would certainly knock them back. But um, the, I'd probably start the, a fire. The, the thing, I, yeah. In fact, you know, I've already worked out that it's definitely not going to be a summer tool. No, no, <laughs> especially no, leave it in the shed especially for the in the bush. Yeah, because um, yeah, any like yuc leaves that were anywhere near where I was spraying or where I was firing, yeah, um, just immediately burst into flame. So it sort of shows you, whereas, you know, other things that were around, you know, it took a bit of actual flame-throwing for it to start. But you think about it. Who ever's heard of oak oil? Oh, I'll just go out and buy some beach oil. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But eucalyptus oil, we all know. Pine oil, we know. They're ready to go, ready Mm. to to burst into flame. But, yeah, and I've also figured out that it's going to be a tool for using on small weeds, Mm. not the larger ones. Well, my blackberries, because I've ignored them in the bottom paddock, for a couple of years Uh-oh. are just appalling. Yeah. And I'm going to have to resort to poison, which I don't like to do. How big an area is it? Huge. Okay. Mm. Huge. I've got no choice. And, I mean, you can't use Roundup on them, which is the worst thing. Mm. I don't want to use Garlon because it's below the grapes and Garlon and grapes don't mix. Can you cut and spray? <sighs> cut and dab, I suppose. Mm. It's too much to dab. Okay. Yes. It's a real problem. It's, it's tricky, isn't it? And, and also I've got you'll... them all through the gardens. Uh, you'll mm. have a lot of little birds yeah. 
nesting yeah. in them as well. So that's that's another sort of consideration, isn't it, when we're cleaning up weeds? All of a sudden mm. they've got this, you know, fantastic habitat because, I mean, they don't care if they're nesting in a hakea de currens or a blackberry. No, exactly, and, as long as they're nesting. Um, as long as they're nesting and they're safe from cats and whatnot. Mm. So suddenly rip out all the blackberries, which, of course, is a, is a good thing in one sense, but then, yeah, goodbye yes, habitat. It, yes, it is. Mm. It's difficult. I've got it, a habitat at work at the moment that it happens to me every year that is always an issue, the pardalotes nest in my potting mix. Oh, how ah. superb. So, you know, every time I get a face on the potting mix, it creates a, uh, an artificial cliff uh, and the pardalotes go in and make a nest in there. And I've got a, a family of pardalotes oh, in my potting mix at the moment. Gorgeous. So I've got to work around them. <laughs> that is brilliant. And so I just keep going with the potting mix sort of and it ends up as this sort of monument stuck in the middle of the potting bay uh, and you've got to be careful you don't cut into the back of it <laughs> too close. the pardalotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and they're zooming backwards and forwards and having a lovely old time. And so as soon as they're finished nesting and I know that the babies are gone, uh, then I can use up the rest of my potting mix. But it happens to me virtually every year. I think it must be the same couple. They come back and they dig a new hole into the potting mix and off they go. And um, it's fun watching them coming and going if your eyesight's good enough to see them. They move so fast. Yes. Um, but they're the cutest little birds. And they're uh, so good good for you eucalypts because mm. they, when they take the lerp they take the whole thing mm. so they're not just the sugary not just the coating top. yeah and i have to say lerp is really bad up around our way this year i've had already i've had at least half a dozen people coming into the nursery asking me why all the gum trees are dying mm. um they're all there's going not enough partlets is yeah. the answer well mm. you know they're all going that awful sort of rusty brown colour, all the foliage, mm. and I'm sure most of the trees will be fine, but it looks awful. You drive around Mount Masson, and it's particularly the, the managums, um, are have, absolutely covered in them. Do you have bellbirds? No. Because the bellbirds chase the pardalotes away, and the pardalotes are much better for the tree than the bellbird. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we don't yeah. have bellbirds up our way, uh, and we certainly have pardalotes. I can, ba- I can vouch <laughs> for that. <laughs> How many we have, I don't know. Mm. Um, but, yes, it's going to be one of those bad years for the eucalypts, for the, for well, the lerp up our way. Because the pardalotes nest on the ground... I just feel they must therefore be more threatened than other birds. Well, you wonder, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you'd think so. It's funny because I had no idea that pardalotes nested in, you know, kind of cliff banks and, and whatever. And I'm busy writing a book on habitat gardens at the moment and I um, interviewed an, an ecologist, Amy Akers, and mm. uh, went down to her place and she was explaining to me how they've got this, you know, just a you know, couple of high foot um, sort of mud embankment out the back and um, the pardalotes had been nesting in that and I had mm. no idea and um, so that was kind of thrilling for me and and then uh, recently I, I went for a walk around the block and um, and as you know I'm in the bush at mm. um, Bender Islands and um, I saw I saw them flying in and out of Another yeah. little embankment, and if I hadn't known that story from Amy, I wouldn't have even thought to look in the, in yeah. the embankment. Yeah. Once, so, you, once you've got quite, your eye in for some of these yeah. things, it's amazing how suddenly they seem to, I don't know, just be there. Yeah, quite, but, quite intriguing. But people don't realise that, that we have got the only um, bird-pollinated forests in the world. Mm. You know, every, in Europe and America and everywhere else, the, the, it's either wind-pollinated or insect-pollinated. But our forests, the eucalypts, the paperbarks, they're all bird pollinated, which is why our birds have... You know, when you go to Europe, you've got your beautiful cries on most of your birds, and mm. that's that's because they are not part of pollinating the trees. Mm. Whereas with us, all our parrots are pollinating our trees, so they've developed these harsh cries, which are about protecting a space mm. rather than about 
you know, attracting a mate. Yeah, okay. They do that with their colour. Yeah. That's one of the things that's very, very distinctively different about mm, Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that. No, I mean, really I knew that, that we had a lot of um, bird-pollinated plants, but, yeah. But, but other forests are not bird-pollinated like yeah, ours. Yeah, yeah. which is, um, you know, an, yet another reason why we should be sort of protecting our birds. You know, I'm reading a book, um, An Uncertain Future by uh, Jeffrey Maslin, I think it mm. is, at the moment, and um, you know it's it's just talking about the decline of of the birds, and you know since since we've been here, or since Europeans have been here, I think you know there's been something like 130 species become extinct. I know our our history is appalling. We've got the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world. Which is really sad when you think about it. Well, and it's a first world country. It's absolutely outrageous. Oh, it's it's obscene. And yeah, so these, oh, and these we're rushing birds. to do it more. Absolutely, yeah. Let's so. have a big coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Yes. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> Where's Graham Sergeant when yeah, you need him? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Oh, dearie me. Hey, um, let's get stuck into some. Com- Community announcements, and we've got heaps and heaps to get uh, through. Lots so, going on yeah, there, yeah, so did you want to get the ball rolling, All right, Stephen? I'm happy yours to do today? that. All right, well, we've got uh, November the 11th and 12th, we've got the um, Bonsai Northwest um, Bonsai Exhibition and Sale. Uh, it's at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street, Footscray, uh, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, uh, today. Uh, entries $5, children under 15 with an adult free, and there's hundreds of bonsais on display. Display and for sale. Uh, demonstrations on um, at uh, eleven a.m. and one p.m. I'm assuming that's on how to make bonsais. Um, so that's on at the community centre in Footscray today. So you should go down and see that. Um, on the eighteenth and nineteenth, we've got the early morning African Violet Group are having their African Violet and Gesneriad show. And Gizneri adds to the family that African violets belong to, so it's all the other African violet relatives, in case you're wondering. Uh, it's going to be at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, Miller Crescent, uh, corner of Stevenson's Road. Most people are aware of where that is, and it's a great venue for these sorts of things. Um, there will be plants on show, there will be plants for sale, there will be equipment and advice and demonstrations and craft on. Um, and... Uh, so it's definitely worthwhile going out for on the 18th and 19th. So it's the African Violet um, Society, the Early Morning African Violet Group. Um, today we've got uh, Arthur's Creek Garden Walk, 9.30 to 4pm. Uh, there's six gardens open and you start at the Arthur's Creek uh, Mechanics Institute Hall where the tickets will be available and that's 906 Arthur's Creek Road, Arthur's Creek. A lot of Arthur's Creeking in there. Uh, so if you want to go for a lovely walk today, that might be a lot of fun. Where, uh, where is Arthur's Creek? Arthur's Creek is Arthur's sort Creek of... is out um, past Hurstbridge Way. Yeah, oh, right. so, yeah. yeah, out in that general yeah. direction. Uh, those who live there will know exactly where they are, <laughs> uh, fortunately. Um, all right, the Rose Society of Victoria uh, are having their uh, 2017 National Rose Show and Australian Rose Championships. Um, it's on today, 10 to 4.30, uh, again at the Waverley Community Centre. Uh, we all know where that is. Um, adults $5, con- concession for children under 12 free, and there will be hundreds of beautiful and fragrant roses. There will be a speakers program, floral art, um, uh, consultations, uh, Devonshire teas, roses for sale, and much, much more. So that sounds like it could be fun. And... Today, oh God, there's so many things going on today. How can you possibly <laughs> do all these things? Um, 
Heritage Trees and the Artist's View uh, at Geelong Botanic Gardens. Uh, it's well known for its magnificent heritage trees uh, and many of them are classified. So the botanic artists have been inspired by these and many others in their works uh, and their work is collected in the book Trees Capturing the Essence of Geelong Botanic Gardens. Uh, follow the tree trail with your guide and find the originals. Uh, meet at the front gate at 2pm. Um, it's 1 to 49 Garden Street, Geelong uh, and it's a gold coin donation, so that could be a nice thing to do this afternoon. Geelong Botanic Gardens is lovely. Oh, it's a stunning place. It's mm. really, really worthwhile going to have a visit. And if you haven't been there already, shame on you, uh, because it really is. It's a, a great asset to the state, the Geelong Botanic Gardens. So yeah, definitely worth going down for. And, of course, if you're doing things, it's like the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, if they've got guided tours and things going on, you get a whole concept of these things that is different from just wandering in and having a look around. So, I think that's so true. I never go to a garden overseas now and, and don't search out the guides because mm. as a guide you just know where things are, what things are going on at the moment. Yep. It just offers a lot more to just walking through a garden. Effectively, without a guide, it's as if you've got blinkers on. Yeah, Mm. because you'll only see the superficial. You won't Mm. get any of the the really interesting background. Yeah, Mm. although I noticed we were in um, Europe a few weeks ago and a lot of the larger gardens had... Um, you know, a description of the garden and what was there in, in all different languages. So you could, you know, take it around with you and do a kind of self-guided tour, so mm. to speak, which was, yeah, very handy. Mm. Yeah. All right, well, they're all the ones I've got. Well, I've got a few. Um, Villa Alba is doing some il- two illustrated talks, one on Saturday the 18th of November and one on Sunday, Saturday the 25th of November. Magritte on the 18th, Geoffrey Smart on the 25th. If you want to know more about this, inquiries at, one word, villaalbamuseum.org or ring Amanda on 0478 116297. So that's two art talks at Villa Alba, which is 44 Walmer Street, Q. There's an open garden in Ferntree Gully, Upper Ferntree Gully, uh, on the 18th and 19th of November, this garden started as just a paddock and is now a beautiful garden. The address is Garden View, 63 Ferndale Road, Upper Ferntree Gully. Uh, it is a steep garden and there is no wheelchair access. But it sounds really very beautiful. Masses of English box hedging, Japanese maples, conifers, perennials vegetable garden, herb garden, topiary gardens and a fish pond. Uh, the phone number for that is 0407 687 402. So that's the 18th and 19th of November for a private garden that is open at 63 Ferndale Road, Upper Ferntree Gully. And then the Open Gardens Victoria has got a talk, which is at Burnley Gardens, on Tuesday the 21st of November and a tour, which is Homestead and Gardens of the Western District, which will be on Thursday the 16th of November, leaving from Federation Square. So if, if you want to know about these two, so this is both of them looking at properties of country Victoria. The first, the talk on the 21st, is about a, a book launch for country, great properties of country Victoria. And the second is a tour of Gardens of Western District, if you go to www.opengardensvictoria.org.au, 
www.bushlandflora.org.au. And then lastly, Bushland Flora Nursery, which of course is where our Sue works. I went there yesterday with with one of the, the other... Was it brimming with people and plants? It was brimming with people and plants, absolutely brimming. And it was hot and it was beautiful. Everyone's going around saying, oh, it's warm. <laughs> It is November. Yes, yes, it should be warm, warmish by now. <laughs> but it was, it was fantastic. And I went, I took up, I went with um, Liz, who does the phones here sometimes, and I was not going to buy a thing, but I did have silly. a little bit of money in my what, pocket. What a silly thought to start with. <laughs> yes, yes, how do you start with that premise? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I did get out with only four plants, so I was quite pleased about that. <laughs> and of course, bumped into Sue because everybody wants to talk to Sue, so I didn't get to talk to her much. Um, met somebody called Robin, who's got two big gardens, one up in Merrijig and one in Emerald or somewhere. She's a, she's a listener, 3CR listener. It's fun going to Bushland, and it's on again next, next Saturday, the 18th of November. It's 110 Clegg Road in Mount Evelyn, and it's good fun, and our Sue will be there, so you can all go and find her and talk to her and she is very knowledgeable she does know her plants oh and she knows her propagation forwards backwards and sideways doesn't she she's she's a gun she's very good she's she's pinched my propagation book from when i was at burnley and she's the only person i know who will read that book as bedside reading reading. (laughs) whereas i thought it was so hard to read and so tedious and only ever read it when i was at college it sat on my bookshelves not ever referred to but that, that's obviously why she's so good. Yeah, she's. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, I've got a few to get through as well. So, this is for the twenty third to twenty sixth of November, and um, this is the Design Files Open House. So, for people who don't know, the Design Files is a um, an online blog, um, which um, you know explores houses and and gardens now um and um this this open house is you know where they set up a house with different products and all that sort of thing and you know you come along and yeah you just you you check out all the different products Mm. but they for the first time this year they've been they've included a garden and uh it's a custom designed courtyard built from scratch by award-winning local landscape designer philip withers ah yes um, so, and there will also be a speaker series, a program of casual speaker events will be hosted featuring, um, the design files founder, Lucy Fagans, along with an inspiring lineup of local makers, stylists, and small business operators. Um, so that's on the 23rd to 26th of November and it's at the Collingwood Arts Precinct, which is at 35 Johnston Street in Collingwood between Wellington and Smith Streets. It's wheelchair, family and pet friendly, which is rather nice. Uh, Simon Rickard's final uh, workshop. He's been having um, a series of botanical workshops and the final one is on November the 30th, if you'd like to go along to that. It's um, of birds, bees and flowers, the sex life of plants. Uh, spring is well and truly in the air. What better time to talk about the birds and the bees? In the morning, join Simon for a presentation on the astonishing life, sex life of plants. You'll never look at a flower in the same way again. After I'm lunch, not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> After lunch, you'll take a ramble around the beautiful gardens at Casa Allegra in their spring glory. And every plant has a story to tell. So that's on November the 30th. And um, it's all workshops include morning tea, lunch with a glass of wine and afternoon tea. Attendees will require their own transport for travel between event venues. 
and that's $160 per head. And for tickets, you can go to the W's, Ticket Bow, so that's T-I-C-K-E-T-E-B-O dot com dot A-U forward slash Rickard Garden Series. And I'll spell that R-I-C-K-A-R-D-G-A-R-D-E-N-S-E-R-I-E-S. So that's uh, Simon's final one. I, I hear they've been going very well, be very well received. Um, on the 3rd of December, the Our Gardening Show here, uh, to coincide with the International Day of People with Disability, um, we'll be broadcasting a special show focusing on the benefits of gardening and horticultural activities for people with disabilities. Guests that morning will include Stephen Wells, a horticultural therapist, nurse, and Gardens and Grounds Project Officer with Austin Health. And also on the show will be Basil Natoli, a garden teacher working with children with disabilities at three education department-run schools in Melbourne. And also um, either Chris Reed, a horticultural consultant, or a member of his staff from Humanscapes, Heaven, Heaven, Kevin Hines Grow, a small team specialising in creating therapeutic environments and assisting clients with the design and development of horticultural-based therapy programs. Professional development and staff training will also be coming into the studio. So that, that should be um, a really good show. And just on that um, matter of um, Steve Wells, he's actually part of a workshop down at uh, Cranburn today, which I will also be part of. So I'll be mm-hmm. zooming out of the studio um, on sensory gardens. So if, if anyone's interested, it's a, um, a 10 o'clock start down at, at Cranburn Botanic Gardens. Um, yeah, just talking about um, different ways that um, gardens are sensory, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's good to hear that Basil's going to be on. I had a, an open garden at my house and um, this man came who said to me, why hasn't Basil Natoli been anywhere near your show for so many, for such a long time? So it'll be great. So that here he is. Back. Yeah, yes. yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so we've also got um, on Saturday the 18th and Sunday the 19th of November, there is a, two open gardens. A striking pair of Hawthorne gardens are set to open. Uh, Kincora is a magnificent property built in 1877, uh, set on a double block, renovated about 12 years ago. The garden is composed of distinctively different areas connected by winding cement stone paths. And then a five-minute walk to the east is 57 Kincora Road, um, which is a strikingly planted garden designed by landscape architect Andrew Laidlaw. Here the front garden creates a framework for the house and planting merges into a single sculptural and sinuous form. Low-water plants, including many contrasting succulents, have been used to great effect with two advanced brachychiton repestris emerging from oval-mounded lawns. I remember when that garden was built. Oh, okay. And, and yeah. the reason I remember it was because it was just so striking. It was so fabulous. And I remember going over one day and, one, and asking one of the gardeners, I said, who's designed this garden? And they said, Andrew. Andrew, mm. fantastic. Yeah. So um, there's, yeah, okay, so I'll just give the addresses. So the first one is at 15 to 17 Kincora Road in Hawthorne. The second one is at 15. Kincora Road and um, this is 18th and 19th of November from 10am to 4.30pm 
Uh, entry is $8 and students $5. And if you need more information, you can go to opengardensvictoria.org.au. And of course, both those gardens are actually easily uh, accessible by public transport. Oh, fantastic. Which is one yeah, of the of things because yeah. it's close to the <coughs> railway station and it's also on the, tra- on on the, the Glenfree Road tram line. Yeah. Now, this um, we've actually got two double passes uh, to give away for this. So if um, people would like to call now, uh, 94190155, we've got two double passes for Kinkora on 18th and 19th of November. Um, something... Uh, sort of interesting. Um, Angus Stewart and Simon Leake have uh, um, about to launch a new book called Grow Your Own, How to Be an Urban Farmer. And um, I've already got my hands on it and been oh, having well a read through. And it's, of course, fantastic. And it's, you know, all about, you know, it provides simple step-by-step methods and information enabling the average city dweller to, to grow their own food plants in, you know, an environment that's not necessarily conducive to usually growing your own plants. And we'll be talking to Angus next week on the show about the book. But um, I've been invited to host a dinner with Angus and Simon. Oh, fun. And it's going to be quite an intimate dinner for 24 people. And it's at the Curly Whiskers French restaurant in Brighton. Um, so if people would like to book for this event, it's on Friday the 24th. It uh, starts at 6.30 for a 6.45 p.m. start. And, you know, there'll just be a, a really lovely conversation with both Angus and Simon talking about how they got into horticulture and why and, you know, basically working through to, how you know, why they have written this book. So that should be a good night. So if um, people are interested in booking that, it's uh, $50 per person for a three-course meal or 45 for the vegetarian option and drinks are extra. And you can go to www.trybooking.com forward slash S for Sally ZXG or there's another one, another address that you could go to, uh, W's trybooking.com forward slash double three three eight seven two. So, yeah, hopefully that should be a really lovely evening. Sounds like really good fun. Oh, you know, I, what I like the idea of is sitting around with, you know, 24 to 30 people who are there and they actually want to talk about growing plants. It's not like going to a normal dinner party where you sort of sit around and people are like, really, you want to talk about your broccoli going to seed? <laughs> you know, they, they actually <laughs> want to hear. Compost. Exactly. Yeah, they, they, they want to hear about it. Now, there's one uh, last one and I've left it to last on purpose so that we can talk about it because I'm sure you guys have been there as well. Um, this is an open garden that's been on this open this weekend, so yesterday and today. Um, it's Woodcote in Kilsyth, and it's the garden of landscape designer Sandra McMahon and um, her husband, uh, architect Warwick Sheffield, and they've created this um, arts and crafts-inspired house and garden, which um, is really quite exceptional. I'm writing a story on it for the Gardening Australia magazine and I was out there the other day interviewing Sandra and um, she's the, the front garden is purely native. It's a half-acre block and it's sort of shaped like an elongated pentagon. So, you know, it's quite an unusual shape to start with and for me that really adds to the sort of um, mysteriousness of the garden in a way. And um, the front garden is... 
entirely native with a sort of a high country theme to it. So, you know, a meadow grassland and, you know, granite boulders and snow gums and that sort of thing. Um, a granite driveway leading to this absolutely beautiful sort of Edna Walling inspired um, home that Warwick has designed. And, um, and then Sandra likes lots of plants, like, you know, like mm. any plants person. And she likes lots of themes. And, you know, a garden with lots of themes and lots of plants could be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. But Sandra has very cleverly combined them to create her transitions into each zone. Mm. And um, she's got a Japanese themed garden. She's got a woodland garden. You know, she's got a beautiful billabong and um, this absolutely towering um, elm tree, which has taken pretty much, you know, was there when they bought the place yeah. and it's completely taken over the garden. But that gave her, you know, a bit of momentum to create this shady woodland. And then she's also got roses. But it sounds like a, a real schmozzle, but it's so cleverly designed. And um, what she's done is she's she's used a really restrained palette of colours. Mm. So that helps sort of unify the whole garden. I suppose she's used mostly greens, yellow and burgundy and then every now and again, you know, sort of bright pops of blues or pinks or something that really kind of stand out and accentuate areas. So she's, yeah, an extremely clever designer. So that's on today at 73 Pasco Avenue in Kilsyth from 10 till 4.30 and the entry price is $8 and students are $5. So that's, um, I mean, even for the joy of seeing different plant combinations because that really can be I mean you guys would know it, it's a tricky thing to get the plant combinations right in the garden oh, yeah. so that it actually looks cohesive but uh, Sandra has often, nailed it. How often do you see somebody's planted a whole lot of roses and every single rose is a different colour and they're in a straight line and you just go oh no. Well that's <laughs> funny that you say that because it, the roses Sandra's like oh I really I have to have roses but there's no way I'm putting roses with my um, Japanese style plant mm. material it's just not going to happen. So she's planted this fairly high tucrium hedge that blocks the rose garden area which is like a Mediterranean zone so that blocks that from the rest of the garden so when you're in this cool woodland sort of Japanese shaded area you can't see the roses mm. but you can see that something's going on over that side and you want to get there and when you get round there she has one she loves her Rugosa and Bourbon roses yeah. and so loves those really scented ones and she wanted to create a, you know the whole spectrum of colors with a the roses riot. an absolute right and you know she's underplanted them she doesn't like the look of rose bushes as such so she's mm. underplanted them with foxgloves and aquilegias and um, you know um, honey wart and all sorts of things so it just looks absolutely exquisite so it's um, yeah I couldn't speak highly enough of that garden it's well, there's an opportunity today. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. No, it's it's well worth it. And Stephen, you wanted to have a chat about woodland perennials. Yes. Well, I've just filled the desk up with them, uh, <laughs> and obviously, people at home can't see that. Um, but this is the time of the year when your woodland plants are at their best. Uh, high spring, they've all come up into full leaf. Um, many of them are in flower, and there's something I don't know, sort of gentle and 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 delicate about woodland perennials uh they're soft wooded plants of course so there's no hard edges or anything like that um and they seem to have the zest for life and they they come up erupt out of the ground really quickly 
flower their little heads off uh, during that spring into the early summer. And then they go into a quiet time through the later summer and most of them then die down in the winter uh, and start the cycle again. And I do like plants that have that sort of dynamics. Uh, I get tired of a garden where there's not a change. Uh, and I mean a dramatic change. I mean, you can, yes, say, all right, well, suddenly the grevillea is in flower and that's fine. Um, but I like a garden that has really dramatic Very dynamic obvious. change. Yeah. Yep. And, and I like to revel in the fact that we have four seasons in southern Victoria. So we have a winter. So I like my garden to look at. Uh, look wintry. I like to have deciduous trees to show off their skeletons in the winter, allow the winter light in. And the woodland perennials are particularly good because they, they've got this bountifulness about them when they erupt out of the ground in the spring. Uh, they're mainly northern hemisphere plants. Um, uh, there's a particularly strong um, array of woodland plants that come from Asia, uh, and there's also some wonderful things that come from North America. The ones I brought along this morning are mainly Asian. There's one exception being a North American plant amongst them. But if you people could see what's in front of me, the textures and forms and shapes and, of the leaves <coughs> and things are so different. Um, those things that are in flower actually are comparatively subtle flowers. They're not big, splashy, gaudy things. Uh, but the foliages are so different that if you had sort of a combination of these plants all growing in the shade of a, a large tree somewhere, uh, it would be highly entertaining. And I'll just <laughs> run through a couple of them just to... Get a start. And Actually, then... Stephen, before we get into yeah. that, I should have mentioned if uh, people would like oh, to yes. ring in um, and ask a question or give a comment on what's happening in your garden, we'd love to hear from you. So our number is 94190155. You're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop and I'm with Stephen Ryan and uh, Virginia Haywood. And I should also mention that uh, the two free passes for the open gardens have gone so um you can stop annoying louise now with your phone calls on that (laughs) (laughs) and ring on something else yes and just quickly virginia would you happen to know the name of the propagation book it's thick and it's green thick and green but we'll we'll, we'll find out i'll find out and mention it next week week, um, i I need to ask sue Mm, yeah. I cannot remember. Yeah, no, that's fine. And and there are quite a few good propagation books out there, but yes. we'll, we'll find out. The propagation name of Practices and Principles by Hartman <laughs> and Kester's one I remember from my training. It doesn't and sound like you enjoyed it, Stephen. <laughs> Look, I've still got the book at home and occasionally I, I turn to it. Uh, I mean, it is a tome. You know, you could use it to keep the door open. Uh, uh, but it has got an enormous amount of information in it and I don't know whether you can still buy Hartman and Kester anywhere, but uh, it I've, was the one we used i know many um that roger wrote a book on propagation which i've got on my bookshelves mm-hmm. and i do use occasionally mm. roger elliott yep. that is yep mm. yep great well i'll find out from you and um to yes mention it next mention week. it next week absolutely right. okay Stephen, over right. to you all right i'll mention the north american one first which i think is rather a fun little plant it's a thing called streptopus and it's sort of solomon seal-esque uh, I guess you could say streptopus uh, amplexifolia. Amplexus means that it's got no stem, and the you leaves know, I are think attached. I think listeners, he only brings in plants with difficult names. Oh, no. well, it could be that, <laughs> but anyhow, streptopus is called twisted stem because the flower stems come out off the main stem and they all kink at a ninety more or less 90-degree oh, yeah. angle, and then the little flowers hang mm. below them, and they're tiny little... Tiny, brug- tiny Brugmansia flowers, <laughs> like yeah, teeny yeah, tiny. Yeah, yeah, exceptionally <laughs> small ones, uh, with little curl-back petals. They're, they're sort of a creamy, greeny colour, um, and after the flowers finish, it gets a little bright red berry, 
uh, and when the leaves are turning yellow in the autumn and the berries are still on the plant, it's, it has a second sort of phase of beauty, which is quite different to the first one. So Streptopus, or twisted stem, um, and it's a North American little perennial. It grows to around about 35, 40 centimetres tall. Uh, it has a slowly creeping rhizominous root system, so you'll end up with a little thicket of it. Um, and all of these plants like shade and they don't like to get too deadly dry so they're the the main things and if you've got a good leafy soil uh, with lots of humus and compost and mulch over the top uh, then streptopus could be worth considering I might add a lot of these woodland plants you don't actually need a woodland for Uh, many of them like hostas and things will grow perfectly well as pot plants so you could have them you know you could have a series of pots of these plants sitting in a shady spot in the garden somewhere so you don't necessarily need a woodland to, to grow them um, the second one I've got here is actually the only evergreen woodlander I've got with me, uh, and it's a thing from China called Bezia, B-E-E-S-I-A. And Bezia is in the ranunculus family, believe it or not. It doesn't look very ranunculaceous, but anyhow. Um, got a very nice leaf. It's got a lovely, glossy, heart-shaped leaf uh, with heavy veining, and it just makes a mound of foliage, probably about 30 centimetres by 40. Uh, and then you get these sprays that come up through it with these tiny little white, fluffy flowers that sort of sit well above the foliage. And it's a really pretty evergreen perennial. It would make a really good... Uh, pot plant because it's in evidence all year round uh, and the foliage is lovely it flowers for ages in the spring uh, and I find in my little woodland at the nursery uh, that it does lightly self-seed so if the, if it's a moist enough spot for it uh, you'll get little self-sown seedlings that'll come up around it and I think it's which charming. You, which you won't get if you go and cover your soil in mulch. No, you do have to have a, uh, a little bit of bare ground for seed to sort of settle and, and come up. If you're mulching heavily, obviously, you're keeping weed seeds down, but you can also be keeping down your volunteers as well. So you do have to have uh, little bare patches here and there if you're going to let things sell seed. And that's so- also important to let insects in that mm. actually need to overwinter in the soil as mm. well. You know, you want to have a few bare patches, not just cover everything with mulch because yeah. a lot of insects, yeah, they go straight mm. into the soil and put mulch there and it's too hard for them. Yes, and, and I have to say with uh, there's some plants that I love because they're self-seeding plants and I've nearly lost several of them over the years by too much assiduous mulching, so you just do have to be a little careful. Uh, I realised only this year that I'd almost lost all my variegated white-flowered honesty uh, because it... You know, I just kept mulching and mulching and mulching. So I've only got a couple of plants left that are coming into flower this year. So I'm going to make an effort to try and re-establish it in the garden again because it's a fabulous And plant. see, my foxgloves are just fantastic. They have, the last couple of years, because we haven't been as dry, mm. I've got foxgloves everywhere. Well, yeah. I'm not going to get those if I mulch too early. Yeah, you've got to be just that little bit careful about it. Um, all right, now, another thing that you don't see in woodlands very often are grassy-type plants. Mm. Wood, uh, grasses and, and related plants tend to be more for open sunny aspects but this is one of the Japanese um, uh, carixes so it's a, it's a, a herbaceous carix uh, called carix siderostica and this variegated form of it's called golden falls and it has the most fabulous almost gold leaves with just the odd green stripe uh, which I think in a shady spot in the garden would stand out yes, superbly. Yes. Um, it only grows to oh, about 25, 30 centimetres tall and about as wide. Uh, it gets funny little brown carex flower heads on it, like a lot of the carexes. They're not showy, but with the gold foliage, the brown flower heads look quite nice. And the whole plant goes a really lovely russety colour before it dies down in the autumn. Um, oh, it sounds good. I think it's a great plant. You can also get a silver variegated form of it. In fact, this particular species of carex, Grows lots of different 
forms and uh, they've become quite collectible in Japan. Uh, the Japanese love variegated things. and uh, But that's not too variegated. Well, it's sort of... It, you know, in a sense, it is. It's but subtle it, in its variegation. Yeah, mm. But it's very heavily variegated, in a sense, because most of the leaf is gold mm. and it's just got the, the green stripes. stripes uh, uh, so it's grasses and, and related plants that are variegated tend not to be as frightening to people as broadleaf plants that are variegated because they're more hectic. These are sort of more symmetrical in their mm. variegations mm. in a way. And so, yeah, variegated grasses and, and, and the like tend to get past the the taste police when it comes to variegations. And I guess also the grasses and strappy leaf foliage plants, they don't really have big splotches no. of variegation, do no, they? No, they, they? It's very rare very for them to do that. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they're, they're variegations with taste, mm. perhaps. How big does that plant grow? Oh, it'll only get to about 25, 30 centimetres tall. Okay. So it's not a big plant, but it has quite broad leaves for a carex. Um, and I've got the silver variegated one as well, which I'm equally as fond of. Um and, uh, yeah, I'm on the lookout because I believe there's quite a number of forms of it in Japan, but I don't know whether many of them have made it into Australia. You'll, you'll have uh, to email Pam and get it. To... Yeah, yes, <laughs> see if she can source some for me while she's in Japan. Absolutely. Uh, so Carrick's sticta, which I think is a lovely group of plants. And, again, it likes a moist spot and semi-shade to shade, uh, and it would make a lovely pot plant. I could see it in a nice blue glazed terracotta pot or something mm. like that, looking really quite smart. Mm. So great plant. So there's three of the things I bought along and no, nobody's rung in yet, have no, they? No, but we should – well, um, Daylene from Druin is worried about her crepe myrtle. She didn't cut the dead flowers off last year and it hasn't got any new flowers yet. Should it's too she early. cut them off? I don't think the but, dead flowers yeah. should make any difference because, no. after all, think a, a tree will flower whether – the dead flowers have come off or not, they mm. f- it will flower the next year. Mm. Mm. And it is. It's too early for crepe myrtles to flower. I mean, I, if they're accessible, I'd probably cut them off because they're not very attractive. Yeah, now. just for the aesthetic purposes. Mm. But I don't think she needs to cut mm. them off for the to make the tree flower. It must be quite quite a small tree at this stage if she's still able to and get the other and chop them off. The other thing too is if, if she's coming up to flowering which she's a bit early, but she is coming up to flowering. It's not about – if she eats bananas, soak her banana skins and and throw the water from the banana skins on her plants that are about to flower. Potassium, right? Gives them a bit of potassium. Mm. It's a cheap way to do it and it will help them flower. And I might add, can I put in a plea for crepe myrtles? Uh, it doesn't seem to be as often happening now, but once upon a time everybody thought you had to cut them back like a coat hanger uh, to get them to flower well. And part of the charm of a crepe myrtle is its beautiful bark. Mm. And if you're hacking it back to the same point and basically pollarding your tree every year, you end up with this truncated, dreadful-looking thing that may well flower well, but it's not the whole point of the plant. I mm. mean, crepe myrtles are great in their foliage. They're good for their autumn colour. They're good for their summer flowers. But they're also beautiful for their shape and form if you allow them to and have their And their bark. Way. And yeah, their bark. the bark yeah. is stunning. So, yes, you don't want to hack them back like I used Whereas to see them done. people do hack the cottonous. Mm. And I think that is more hackable than... Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah she can give them a hiding yeah. uh, because the whole point of them is, is good, strong growth with lots of lovely big leaves on but them. But I have to say... I am finding Grace a bit of a disappointment Mm. because she just seems to throw the incredibly long stem with a few, with the leaves right at the very end. Grace is exceedingly vigorous as a cottonus. But but she only flowers at the end. And so you end up with these really, 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 I mean, there's one in the botanic gardens. I've got Grace in my garden and she's done it a bit, but the one in the botanic is shocking. It's Mm. about five foot of stem till you get a leaf. 
Yeah, yeah. The I trick with that one, though, is I think with the really vigorous ones, what you've got to do is if you cut them back really hard, they send out long canes, but you need to get the canes tips taken out of them early in the season to encourage them to branch and branch and branch until you build up a nice sort of shape. Uh, just hacking it back will send out those big long canes. So you've got to so you need, nip it. So you need to hack it and then... And then nip uh, as it goes and nip the tops out three or four times so, in the season right. uh, to make them branch and branch and branch again and that way you can end up with a nice shapely Because plant. I've got about four or five different cottonists and mm. Grace sends these horrible long things... Mm. The is it royal purple? Yeah, royal purple is the darkest of the purple. And that ones. is beautiful, and mm. doesn't do any of this long cane no, business. It's a lot less rampant, yeah. so it's more restrained. Actually, have you planted yet uh, the one called uh, Young Lady? No, you've mentioned Young Lady yeah. before. I'd really like to plant Young Lady. Yeah, I've I got think so it's really funny because it's round, fat, and smokes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hardly a Young Lady, um, but it's but a really it's good a one. It's a small one. Oh, it, it only grows to about a meter and a half, two meters. Yeah. It grows very dense, very bushy because it branches and branches and branches. That's sort of its habit, and every single branch gets a plume. So when so it's in flower, beautiful. you've just got this massive smoky plumes and is it, over it. And is it green? It's a green-leafed one. Mm. Uh, its autumn colour is pretty without being completely over the top. It's not one of the best of the autumn colourers. But for its summer pluming, it is just beautiful. Uh, and it's a really good sort of moderate-sized shrub. Yeah, Grace can get a you know a bit large for for some gardens. Oh, can't yeah, it, it can so be that, quite yeah. a big plant. Yeah. It can be really big, and of course, there's a the new gold one out there as well called yes. Gold Spirit, which oh. I'm actually quite taken I've by. I've seen that. Yes, yeah. I, th- I rather like that. Yeah. I was trying to work out how I could fit it in. Yeah, well, it is an odd sort of a plant, but a friend of mine's got one in a garden that's sort of got. It's at the end of this sort of long area and it's sort of got hedging around it, which is unfortunately for tinea and Ptospora mixed together. Uh, but nonetheless, the darkness of the uh, Fatinia, uh, with this golden cottonus in front of it, uh, is looking rather splendid. The other thing I've got planted with my cottonus is the Judas tree. Oh, yes. Yeah. And the Circe siliquestrum. And I just think that that is such... Everyone goes out and buys that horrible forest pansy. Mm. Well, you've just offended half the uh, viewing <laughs> or listening audience, I think, there in Virginia. But anyhow, people I know buy what, you mean. what they know. Yeah, yeah but, they do. But the, I think the Judas tree—it is such a beautiful tree, mm. and it, it, for me, during the drought, it was by far the strongest tree I had. Mm. It really, really, really just it is. Much, I don't need water. Mm. Yeah, it's much, much tougher because it's more Mediterranean than Circe's Canadensis, which is where forest pansy, pansy comes sits. from. Mm. Um, it's actually called the Canadian redbud yes. uh, is the common name for the canadensis one. It is not particularly drought tolerant, mm. uh, nor is it particularly heat tolerant. But the true Judas tree, Siliquestrum, is incredibly tough. It's wonderful. It's as mm. tough as tough, but it doesn't look tough. It mm. looks really quite gentle and, and gorgeous. Mm. Yes, Great well, little tree. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, actually, talking of you know temperature and whatnot, have either of you guys noticed, you know, you both been in your gardens for a long, long time mm. now. Um, with climate change, have you noticed different plants are struggling or um, you're needing to plant, you know, a, a different range of plants to th- cope yeah. with the temperatures? And I think dryness? my palette of plants is, is slowly changing. Um, uh, I'm going far more for, for heat-tolerant plants than I used to. Um, I don't remember the last time I put in blue poppies. Um, mm, or a Davidia. Yeah, and I've, I stopped growing blue poppies years ago. I mean, I, I now am one of those people that say, oh, I've been there. 
<laughs> so I don't have to do it anymore. Um, and as much as I love some of those plants, uh, I've really sort of moved away from a lot of that stuff. Uh, but having said that, I'm pushing the barriers in other directions. I'm, I'm putting in more cold... Uh, sensitive plant material so I'm putting in a lot more stuff that's frost tender um, because a lot of that stuff is also heat tolerant in the summer I mm. mean I've got a really nice um, uh, erythrina cristigali growing beautifully in the garden at home now and it gets knocked by the frost I cut it back so I'm coppicing it at about a meter high it sends out sort of two meter long stems every summer now and I get these great big masses of red Beautiful pea flowers red flowers. On. Um, you know all those sorts of things I would never have thought of it using does, years ago it does turn up it, mm. I don't know if it will around you but down in Melbourne it, it is a bit weedy it really does turn up lots of babies that's called um, enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's a beautiful tree. Oh, I love it. I just think it's fantastic. Uh, and I was it, actually saying to Virginia earlier today, I've got a new acanthus that I've added to my acanthus collection because I hold the national collection of acanthuses, believe it or not. Um, uh, acanthus senii from Ethiopia. Uh, and so it's a hot climate acanthus. It's shrubby. It's not a herbaceous perennial. It copes well with sun. has big holly-like leaves that are glossy but grey. And glossy grey leaves are really hard to find because they tend to be matte. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has spikes of brilliant scarlet red flowers mm-hmm. on it. I mean, it is just to That's die gorgeous. for this thing. So it's gone into the ground for the first time this year and, I'm, and, and it's shooting away quite well and looking quite splendid. Uh, so hopefully by midsummer I'll have some flowers on it. I'm really enjoying Acanthus. I'm mm. sort of into that family at the moment. Oh, the, the group is fantastic. There's so many interesting plants you know, the, in it. The, rhino, the rhinocanthus that yeah. I got last year, well, that or two years ago now, that is stunning mm. and just beautiful. My brilliantasia survived the winter. Mine didn't. Oh, dear. I've lost my brilliantasia yet again. Uh, I think I'm going to have to give up on brilliantasia, as lovely as well, it mine, is with its big blue flowers. Mine's not looking – I mean, it, it's a stick. Mm. But even the ones in the botanic gardens are still a bit burnt. Yeah. And, you know, the botanic gardens is a lot warmer. Oh, yes. You hardly get any frost in the botanic garden, mm. surely, these days with all the city warming around it and what have you. Exactly. Um, so, yes, yeah, so Brilliantasia I'm going to have to give up on. But Remember the ones we saw in Madagascar? Not in Madagascar. Oh, in Mauritius. In Mauritius. Beautiful. Oh, it yeah. was extraordinary. It was just wild in this stream. Mm. It was so yeah, exciting. Yeah, nothing nothing like seeing plants in their home environment. Yeah. Yeah. Just, oh, for some reason lovely. they're really healthy and, and enjoy being. <laughs> There. Yeah, it's yeah, funny yeah. about that, isn't it? So, Stephen, how do you go about having a national collection of something? Like, do you have to have the most species? Or uh, well, actually, that's an interesting thing. Uh, we and it's something we haven't spoken about for quite some time, actually. So, there is an organisation out there for those who don't know, which is now known as Plant Trust. Uh, it was for years the Ornamental Plants Conservation Association. Then it became the Garden Plants Conservation Association, and now. Um, Quite sensibly, the name has been shortened to Plant Trust. Uh, And the premise of the organisation is to register uh, collections nationally of groups of plants. And so if you're a fanatical hosta collector, for instance sake, you might want to register your hosta collection. Uh, What you need to have is a representative collection. So it doesn't have to be every known species and cultivar of a group, um, but it needs to be representative of that genus or group within a genus. I mean, you wouldn't hold the National Collection of Roses, but you might hold the National Alistair Clark Rose Collection mm-hmm, or the, mm-hmm. the National uh, Thomas uh, Graham Stewart Thomas Collection of Roses or whatever. You then need to document your collection reasonably well. So you need to have uh, you know uh, properly labelled, properly named 
Photograph. Uh, photographing it is a good idea, but it's yep. not absolutely essential. But mm-hmm. you do need to send in lists that are fairly comprehensive. Uh, provenances are, are useful if you know where your plants came from so that they can be traced back. Um, and you then join Plant Trust as a member and then you put your... Uh, collection up for registration and I might add you can be a member of Plant Trust without having a registered collection you can be like part me of, yeah you can be part of the organization because you see it as an important organization because I'm one of those disorganized people that has all these plants in her garden and doesn't know what they are much yeah. less have any rec- recollection of where <laughs> they came from yeah well anyhow the more organized people within the organization could register a collection and I'm holding four collections now I've got the Dogwood collection or corners. So greedy, Stephen. Yeah, I know. It's dreadful. Uh, But that's at the nursery, so that's the nursery collection. Mm -hmm. And then in the garden at home, I've got Acanthus, uh, I've got Osmanthus, and I've got Sambucus, the uh, elderflowers. So I've got the national collections of those. Now, that doesn't mean somebody else couldn't register a collection of Sambucus Mm -hmm. or Osmanthus. And in fact, we encourage that sort of behaviour because you've got backup collections that can help each other. And you Uh, might have slightly different plants. Yeah, and and some species might do well in your area, but not so well in somebody else's area. uh, uh, And you can have a bushfire and therefore your collection is at risk. And so if there's another collection somewhere else, you've always got that sort of extra backup. And and we'll swap, you know, people Mm -hmm. will be keen to... Mm. Swap plants and mm. things like yeah. that. Which so is it's it's a really important organisation. We have um, uh, regular functions. We have our AGM, which is usually in September, where we have a big plant auction, which is great fun, uh, and it's one of our main fundraisers for the year. Uh, and we have a Christmas party, which is coming up on the tenth of December. So people might like to get involved in that and, and test the waters with our organisation. And the Christmas party this year is going to be in my garden, and we'll also be visiting one of the other local Mount Macedon gardens during the day, and we'll be eating, drinking, and having a lovely time because it's really more about a social relaxing, event. yeah, yep. uh, and to see the end of the year in and that sort of stuff with friends and what have you. Um, so yeah, so we have that coming up. So I guess if people went into our website, they could uh, get in touch with us. So Plant Trust website and. Uh, if you wanted to come along to the Christmas party, we'd just have to know reasonably early in the piece. We have a small charge to cover the costs of things, but it's it's or you minimal. Could, we have an office, which is actually at the Botanic Gardens, and the phone number, it's only person one day a week, which is Monday, but the phone number there is 96505639, and you'll find either myself or Don there on Mondays. Great. Yeah. And are there any particular collections that you'd be interested in adding to the, Look, the there's lots of stuff collection. we'd love to add. I mean, uh, we're trying to encourage a Varea rhododendron collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got somebody else who might be going to hold a Brugmansia collection. Uh, we've not long ago uh, registered a big um, aloe collection. Uh, you know, there's oodles of different plants out and you there. Can, you can be clever like Stephen and find a collection of something that's only got a very small number. So oh, you have yes, four of them yes, and you've absolutely. got the whole collection. Yeah, and I'm the, going to have a collection of Wallamai Pines. Exactly. <laughs> you could. Uh, we would consider registering a Wallamai Pine collection, I'm sure. Uh, but it, it is smart not to try and extend yourself beyond your capabilities. I mean, you wouldn't hold the National Oak Collection on a quarter-acre block in Melbourne. You know, So you've got to be sensible about these things. But there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't hold a National Ixia collection on a quarter-acre block block in Melbourne. Uh, I mean, there's just... Oh, could you hold a bonsai collection? No. No. Mm-hmm. No, because it's all about the genetics of the plants, not about how they're being grown that matters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's... But I've got lots of ixias. 
Yeah, we'll see. Hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, I so, even know their names. Yeah, we'll see. That's a big start. Um, and, um, yeah, so it doesn't need to be a huge group of plants, but it needs to be representative of the group of plants that you're collecting. I mean, I wouldn't recommend somebody hold a woodland perennial collection, for instance, sake. It would just be... Impossible. Yeah, but crazy. you could hold a group of plants that are woodlanders. So you might hold the Hoster collection or the Estilby collection or the, the Solomon Seal collection I don't or whatever. Believe, I don't believe you could hold an Estilby collection in Australia. It's too dry. Well, you might be up, up in the Dandy North. Mm. Yeah, mm. and I mean uh, Dennis Norgate, God rest him, he's now gone. But uh, he used to have amazing Estilbys out at um, out of Trentham. You know, yeah. So he had beds of the things uh, but you know and that's the other interesting thing I mean this organisation being an Australia wide one although based in Melbourne uh, we have the potential to hold collections of almost everything because you go to England and you know you've got a specific sort of climate there and a lot of their collections have to be greenhouse grown or whatever but we could grow our tropicals in Queensland we could grow our alpines in Tasmania we could have collections mm. of virtually every mm. known group of plants in the world somewhere in Australia yep you know, we could have our Baobab collection in Darwin. You know, uh, it, it. You know, it would. He's be... on a mission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, I believe that there is a garden up there somewhere that has got pretty well the whole collection of the world's um, nine species of Baobab um, growing up there. So, where is that person? I want that collection yeah, registered yeah, with we'll Plant need to, Trust. Need to get onto them. Yeah. So and, there you go. And we should get onto our caller. So we've got uh, Gloria from Berlin. Good morning, Gloria. Oh, good morning. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, I almost fell asleep then. Not- <laughs> oh, are we that boring? What? No. <laughs> you have in. been waiting for a long time, Gloria. Uh, is that what it is? Um, look, a couple of questions. Um, yeah, I came in from the garden and I thought, oh, yes, I'll ask you these two questions. Um, out the, f- I've got all my natives in the front mm-hmm. um, and they've just done brilliantly, popped them in a clay soil did nothing to them 2006 and they just you know have been fantastic and what I did inherit though was a very large eucalypt tree which has grown much larger in 30 years and there are three casarinas uh, there now I was looking at the eucalypt canopy yesterday and it's looking very very thin mm-hmm. and also um one of the casarinas has died. Just got a huge split down it and mm. I've got to take it out. Mm. So with the eucalypt, and remind me that I've got another question after this, um, <laughs> uh, should I water it? I never do. I, well, you couldn't possibly need to water it now. I mean, you might in February or something, but when you think about it, mm. we have had a lot of rain I mean, my dams aren't anything like full. We haven't had an excessive amount of rain, but you there know, has been water falling we out of say the sky. That, Virginia, but you know, I dug down, put a couple of lemon trees in the back yesterday. Yes, yes. And it's you so get down dry. and it's dry, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. unbelievably dry. Look, if you decide that you do want to water the eucalypt, and, I mean, it does seem counterintuitive to water our native plants, but, I mean, native plants can die of drought just like anything else can. Um, and, in fact, I remember we've got a, a hill just the back of my nursery called Mount Tarong and it's all rocky and every time we get a, a serious drought 
eucalypts die all over the side mm-hmm. of Mount Tarong because they don't get enough moisture. And funnily enough, the feral Pinus radiatus stand there looking green and gorgeous mm. the, with the eucalypts dying around them. So Bizarre. go figure. Um, but, um, you know, so our trees can need a drink. I mean, you know, it, you sometimes need to get them over a, a, a bad period. Mm. Having said that, though, you don't want them necessarily to start reliant, becoming reliant on that water. And if you do decide to water, you just have to make sure that you get it down really deep. There is no point in just right. surface watering because all no, you'll no, do no. is get the roots to come up to the surface of looking course. for the water. So how would I... I mean, this, this tree is probably close to 100 feet tall. Mm. Oh, You'd wow. have, to, have to give it a very long, slow drink. Yeah. Just leave a hose dripping or yep. dribbling. Not dripping because right. dripping will take too long, but just dribbling right. for hours on end in different spots around the tree to try and make sure the water gets well down into the ground. And it will love you for it, so there's no real reason why you shouldn't do it if you're prepared to. Okay, and that would, uh, you think, improve the canopy, which is looking very thin. Well, that could be a, pro- a part-a-lot problem. A what? <laughs> a part-a-lot problem. You might, you might have a lot of lerp in it. Oh. Which is what Stephen mentioned uh, earlier. Yeah, so lerp could be an issue, uh, in which case they generally shuck it off after a period anyway. The lerps kill most of the leaves that are on the tree, and then the leaf comes out with a whole pile of fresh foliage and... You wouldn't know it had happened a little yeah, while ha- later. Yeah, I had it on the snow gum, actually, but yeah. I haven't... The leaves are up so high on the uh, big ute that I'm not sure. Yeah, well, certain eucalypt you... species cop lerps really badly, others don't. So... Have you got Have you got bellbirds around you, darling? Uh, no. Look, they've, they've um, you know, threatened us, but they just fly over and back onto the botanic gardens now, I think. <laughs> Good, because they are a problem, because if you've got them, you do tend to get worse lerp. Yeah, no, 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 they were, anyway, they were in the other part of, near Bully Night and Garden. The other thing, Gloria, I mean, you could um, apply some sea salt or, you know, liquid seaweed around the drip. Yeah, around Mm. the drip root. And look, if you're really worried about it, um, don't hesitate to bring in a professional get a tree get an arborist arborist to come in and have a look at your tree assess what's going on sometimes you can fix these things quite easily um uh, sometimes there's nothing you can do and you may have to consider the long-term removal of the tree i mean that happens oh Um, i have so many people that pass my house and say oh madam that tree is far too big Oh, big is... Let me take it down for you. Oh, yeah. Well, you'll always get people who'll no. do that. Uh, no. I will never bring somebody into my place who's just somebody who takes trees down. I would yeah. always bring somebody in is who can assess you can my tree. Is there someone you recommend? I don't know anybody around Melbourne specifically. I mean, I've got good tree surgeons I work with out in the Macedon Ranges, but mm. uh, I'm sort of a little isolated from what's going on in Melbourne. Uh, but there's got to be some there's good reputable... There's a lot reputable... of, yeah, yeah, qualified arborists uh, around. Yeah, oh, and, right, right. and I think it's definitely worth... If you're worried about a tree like that, I think it's definitely worth spending a few dollars and at least assessing the tree and seeing what's going on so that you're... Actually, I could ask somebody at Bullion Art and Garden, they might. Well, they may well have a tree surgeon that they Mm, work with, yes. So there you go. So what was your second question? Second question is Shady Spot. Um, I had a... uh, My youngest son came over one day and he's much more ruthless than I am and took out this spirea, which was under a a large tree on the east side, Mm -hmm. which was just, you know searching for sun and lep, had leapt over the lawn. So that went and left this big empty spot, mm-hmm. which is sort of under the tree, but it gets hit with a, a very hot sun around 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Oh. 
Uh, but I'd love to put something there because on the east side is where my bedroom is and I want to wake up in the morning, not only see the sun rising, but see this something of flowers. Mm. Something. But it gets sun at three o'clock. But it gets that hot sun. All right. Well, I'm going to make one suggestion which I think could work quite well and that's a shrub called Micaea Bella. Um, oh, yes, you know, it's in the Botanic Gardens mm. and it's in flower at the moment. It has Where a about? beautiful, be- in the South African bed. It has a beautiful purple flower. It's a lovely thing. How and it, tall, how big? Uh, th- well, two and a half to three metres both ways. Too big. No, it has to be something you can low. Prune you can it. prune it. Yeah. No, 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 but it has to be something low because, ah. um, yeah, it just uh, because it would reach the lower part of this tree. Mm. What tree is it, Gloria? A big one. (laughs) A big one. (laughs) A Uh, green one. A big green one, yeah. Uh, All right, so you need something lower. Yeah. that will cope with the with, which it's won't lean of, out and will cope with a bit of sun bit of in the sun, afternoon. The sun's the problem. I would, you know, normally I'd say put in Plectranthus zuluensis. Yes, yes. Oh, Plectranthus. Yeah, some of the Plectranthus will cope with a fair bit of zuluensis. Which one is that? I, I think that's the prettiest of the Plectranthus. Um, it's not the grey one. No, that's no. Argentatus. Yeah, I've got that. Yeah, no. it's it's um, I've got it at my place, and it it. It grows as high as you want it to, so it's up for me. It's about shoulder height, but you can very easily keep it much lower. Right, and it has a very pretty pale, uh, lavendery flower. Okay, and of course, there's some other plectranthus. Those really deep, deep, um, yeah, sort of like the purple leafed ones. Yes, yeah. that they've bred, I think, from Eclonii, but yeah. they're smaller. Yeah. And, yeah, those sorts of things, they'll tolerate a bit of sun. They'll take a bit of sun, yes. uh, Even that one, what do they call it? Um, Oh, gawks. Lavender something or... Oh, Mona Lavender. Mona Lavender. No, no, I'm sick of them. (laughs) (laughs) No, I had a couple near that. I ripped them out. Zuluensis. That's the plectranthus. Yeah. Can you spell that? Zulu. Oh, Zulu. Mm. Yeah, Zuluensis. It's it's African. Mm. Right, okay. Yeah, so yeah, so there's a couple of ideas, uh, and I'm sure there are other plants, but I'm just struggling to sort of get my head around that afternoon sunny bit. Um, but there's there's got to be lots of small growing plants that would cope uh, with the conditions there and give you some colour, because you know, I mean, if it gets a bit of sun, then it does open up the possibility for something flowery. Mm. Yes, um, exactly. And uh, uh, I'm sure there's lots of smaller shrubs. I mean, there's. Uh, I mean, you took out a spirea, but there's some very attractive dwarf spireas out there now, yes. like uh, uh, Snow Mound and, and some of those. that uh, uh, There's one called Golden Flame, I think, which has yellow leaves and pink flowers, which is a little off-putting to some people, but it can look quite striking, and they only grow to about a metre. Well, I've got Gloria, the... I've just had a text from Sue. Yeah. <laughs> you could use Coria, Ivory Lantern or Alba in that spot. It only Ooh. grows to about a metre high. Coria Alba. Or Ivory Lantern. What's Ivory Lantern? Coria Ivory Lantern or okay. Coria Alba. Okay, I've got Coria. I've got Coria. Mm. Alba. Well, they're good little shrubs and they would cope with that sun. So, mm. yeah, so there's a few ideas. Corias are actually a good suggestion. They are, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. And or you could go to Sue's Sale next Saturday morning. Really? And buy them there. <laughs> <laughs> she's probably got some in stock. That's why she suggested them. Well, that's... <laughs> Of course. Yes. Where is she, Virginia? She's in Clegg Road in Mount Evelyn. Clegg. So it runs, but Clegg Road runs between Mount Evelyn and Wandon. Is that close to where you are? Yes. Okay. Mm. So there you go. 
What's the name of her place? Bushland, Bushland Nursery, Bushland Flora. Bushland Flora, Flora. yeah. And it's got a big sign on the road with lots of balloons saying sale. Terrific. And then she's just come back with another one, Leptospernum Pink Cascade. (gasps) Oh, good thinking. So she's doing well there. I'm glad she's listening. Yeah, Yeah, well, I will be when I go back to the garden. Listen, that's terrific. Thanks a lot. Good good on you, Gloria. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. I see that Robin from Mirage has rung in, and she asked me this yesterday. Does and I said I'll ask Stephen tomorrow, yeah. and of oh, course promptly forgot to ask him. Does Dorianthus is Dorianthus frost tender? Yes, I thought so. I Mine gets. I, I've got one in the garden at home that a friend gave me that he found on the side of the road in New South Wales somewhere where a grader had graded it out, uh, and so he thought, oh well, it's perfectly legitimate to take that home, and, and he did, and he gave it to me, and it'd be about a meter and a half tall now, and every winter the foliage gets burnt down in the centre of the plant, and by the Following autumn, it's almost looking reasonable again, and then it gets knocked again. And mm. I keep looking at it and thinking, why am I just leaving that there? It's just so awful. So, yes, Dorianthus are frost tender. Um, so, however, in saying that, there is a incredible specimen down at the Cranbourne Gardens, um, Dorianthus palmeri, I yeah. think it is, and that is in full flower at the moment, um, looking absolutely spectacular, mm. really healthy. So I really think it depends on the microclimate that you've got. Well, I in. said to it, plant it on a hill and the frost will roll off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, and, and it is... Because you're, you're not on a hill. No, and I do get heavy frosts, although I've got big trees around me which break the frost up a bit. Mm. Um, and my Dorianthus, I would have said, is in a quite sheltered site. Mm. Um, it's got a big... Um, windmill palm right next to it and it's got an overhead canopy of a Chinese elm uh, so it's you know other things in that bed that are slightly frost tender don't get hit yeah so it's it's somewhere where I would have thought I'd have a crack at a dorianthus and it might well grow but it's uh, it's never looked good mm. uh, and mm. it's been very slow growing because it keeps getting knocked back uh, it should be about three times the size it is I reckon by now if, if it had been in good well I've got fetal. one which I put in five years ago and hasn't got up to my knees yet mm. So I don't know oh, what I've done the, wrong to that. You've got the dwarf mm. version. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, they come from this, a tiny little area in, you know, southeast Queensland, you know, just popping over into the border of New South Wales. Yeah. So there's a tiny little zone on the coast, which obviously is not going to have a, a day's frost in no, its life. No. Um, so I think if you want to try it, and, and Look, we, I we all want to yeah. try and grow plants that we're yeah, not supposed to grow. I always do. Yeah. I mean, I've got... Believe it or not, within about 20 feet of my Dorianthus, uh, I've got a um, philodendron, well, what used to be philodendron salome and I think is now bipinata fitter or something, you know, the big philodendron with the great big leaves. Mm-hmm. It's been in there 25 years. It's mm. never been hit by the frost. Uh, it has got tree ferns over the top of it, so it's even slightly more sheltered than the Dorianthus. But it's within 20 feet of the Dorianthus, and here's this dare I say, quite luxuriant philodendron growing in the ground at Macedon. You know, I planted it out there assuming I was killing it because yeah. I didn't really want it in some ways. Uh, Craig had moved in with it. Uh, and, and I said, oh, I'll just <laughs> plant that out it. in the garden. Yeah. yeah, so I just plonked it out in the garden thinking, oh, well, that'll be dead by end of next winter. And although it's He pro- said hoping. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm actually quite pleased with it now because it's great big leaves look really good in amongst the tree ferns and stuff and gives quite a, well, quite a legitimate tropical 
look. Um, but, yeah, you wouldn't expect it to grow there. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's always worth a try. And, I mean, I always say to people, if I haven't spent a sheep station buying that plant, then I'm more than happy to give it a try because if it doesn't work, you've learnt something. And if it does work, you've learnt something. Uh, you know, it's a win-win situation. Uh, and if it doesn't work, you don't have to tell everybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. So you can just keep it to yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> now, um, both Sue and Liz have rung in uh, with the names of a couple of the propagation books that ah, uh, well Virginia was talking about. So the first book is uh, Plant Propagation Principles and Practices by Hartman, Kester and Davies. And that's, that's the a, one I've had. That's a yeah. Royal Horticultural Society book. And um, Sue also um, is recommending Angus Stewart's book, Let's Propagate, because there's a really good guide um, for both natives and exotics. Mm. So there's um, two propagation books you can get your hands on. And a listener has rung up just wanting the details again of the Angus Stewart um, and Simon Leake dinner. Um, that's on at Brighton on the 24th of November. And those details is um, www.trybooking.com forward slash S for Sally Z X G. Or if you get stuck, you can just ring the uh, Curly Whiskers restaurant on nine five nine six double three two four. Read Good. the number again. Uh, yes, because okay. she, she'll Ni- be scribbling mad. <laughs> Absolutely. nine five nine six double three two four. Though you won't uh, forget the name of the restaurant, Curly Whiskers. It's a French restaurant, so I'm very much looking forward to yeah, that dinner. Yeah, sounds like it should be good yeah. fun. Yes. So now you are listening to the 3CR Gardening oh, Show. Yes. I'm A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and Virginia Haywood. And if you would like to ring in and ask a gardening question or have got a comment about something in your garden, you can give us a call on 94190155. And uh, with us now is Gwen. Good morning, Gwen. Good morning, everyone. Oh, hello, our Gwen. Yes, that, that Gwen. <laughs> yes, yes. Our very own Gwen. The Elliot variety. <laughs> um, you were talking about Dorianthes Palmer oh, before, yes. the spear lily. Yeah. Um, we were in Melbourne last weekend. Actually, we were at 3CR, I think, and on the way going home, um, right opposite Hamer Hall on St Kilda Road, you've got the gardens there going down to the river. Oh, yes. Yeah. And if you stand on the pavement there... Um, you get the best view. If you just look down there with a camera in hand, I took a photo, I haven't got it in front of me, there would be between five and eight big flower spikes oh, on fantastic. the spear lily. Guy me, um, guy me, not the guy me lily, the spear lily, Dorianthes palmeri. You know, they've got real wow factor and people mm. around us were saying, what are they? Mm, mm. Yeah, fantastic a, big, plant. a whole lot of them in a row there, just looking down. Is it Queen Elizabeth Garden or whatever it is there? But, but um, Gwen, that's at Hamer Hall anyway. Gwen, Mary Jig is going to be probably a bit difficult for them, isn't it? I mean, oh, Mary yeah, Jig but is... I mean, other people listening, mm. you know, yes, go uh, and have who a look. might be in Melbourne today or tomorrow or whenever. There's one um, in the Botanic uh, Gardens which has actually come out orange, not red. Hmm. Yes, they're all, yes, that one always comes out orange it's near lovely. the children's garden. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, but um, as I said, there's a big batch of them there and um, they've got the real wow factor. You know, Certainly have. They do put... A metre and a half long almost. Yeah, they do put pay to this sort of idea that Australian natives are a sort of little prickly, small leaf sort of grey things, don't they? Well, I remember Don Burke years ago saying, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to ask God is why he put um, the um, Dorianthes excelsa, the gymea lily, 
in the Sydney Botanic, in the Sydney Gardens, you know, in the bushland, because it just doesn't fit. <laughs> so that was Don Burke. Yeah, well, it does look, it, it is one of those uh, exceptions that prove the rule, I guess. It is one of those sort of over-the-top sort of plants that a lot of people wouldn't associate with Australian natives. So, you know. Yeah, and, we have and, wonderful plants. And Gwen, the one down at Cranbourne, I noticed I had a real close look at it and it was an absolute mass of bees and other insects just mm. crawling oh, all over it. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes the birds can get um, uh, quite intoxicated by the, the nectar because it, it, the, each flower is maybe three or four inches long in the old term and um, it can hold a, a pool of nectar and sometimes it goes, a li- you know, a little bit fermenty and ah. the birds can get, um, you know, quite drunk on it sometimes. No, that would be amusing Woo-hoo. to watch. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> those waffle birds. Big, big night out at the um, at the Dorianthus. <laughs> the, um, the pollen, on um, certainly on this um, gyme lily, the one that's got a big head like a basketball-shaped red flower and size, um, uh, the pollen can be bright emerald green. Ooh. And so it's worth having a close look and if you've got your camera, you know, zoom in and have a look at the pollen on them because each flower is quite spectacular. Brilliant. Fantastic. Hmm. Oh, okay. well, are you going, to, for? You're going to be at uh, Cranbourne later today, Gwen? I won't be at Cranbourne today, but I know you will and other people will, will too. I will, so and, I won't um, see you today. It's going to be a very interesting day, Should I'm be sure. Good. Yes. All right, well, I'll catch up with you another time. We will. Good okay. on you, Gwen. Bye, Gwen. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Um, now, we've got had a couple of um, listeners calling, and no one wants to go on air today. Yeah, they all want the to be all the... kind of overt uh... and um, So Virginia from Coburg. Um, oh, Stephen, can you repeat the name of the acanthus with the shiny grey leaves? Oh, Senei. S-E-N-N-I. So Senei. It's the Ethiopian acanthus, and I'm hoping it's going to be... Well, David Glenn's got it growing out at um, his place at Lamley Perennials at Ascot, and that's very frosty out there. I think the plant does get frosted back every winter in David's garden, uh, but I'm living in hope that it will survive in my garden well, and I've propagated up a few plants that I've got more or less ready for sale now of it as well. Um, I'm just blown away by it, and I'm so pleased to be able to add it to my National Acanthus collection. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Sounds good. And Neville from Muraduck um, would like to know the phone number of the Plant Trust Register, Virginia. 96505639. And it's only on Mondays, but you can find the website quite easily, um, which is Plant Trust. Excellent. But Definitely give us a ring tomorrow, 96505639. And the Christmas party is going to be on the 10th of December in Macedon. Yeah. I'm all excited to know what plants Neville is going to... Uh, yes, yeah, it would be interesting to see what sort of collection he's making. But, the Boreas, you know, the Boreas rhododendrons. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to have a Boreas collection. It could be species or it could be hybrids or it he could probably, be both. He probably just wants to come... To the party. Yeah, and, and that's nothing fine wrong too. with that. Yeah, no, no yeah. we're, we're very happy to engage with people on whatever level uh, at Plant Trust. Uh, so, yes, you can be an absolute plant geek or you can be um, just a, a, an interested gardener. Uh, who just wants to get involved. Who just wants to come along for some champers. Yes, or something like that. Yes, a party animal. Yep. Uh, that's fine too. Yep, excellent. Now, Virginia, you brought in a couple of plants, but interestingly, you've got no idea what they are. No, well, I had this fantastic open garden recently. It was so much fun. I had this, it was a salvia group. I had the two salvia 
the, the most important people in the country. Oh, yes. Sue the... Templeton and, and Meg Bentley there. And I thought, well, as I've got these amazing salvia people here, there was about 15 or 20 of them. I thought I put up a whole number of plants on my table and said, I don't know what these are, gang. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Can you please tell me? Of course, Meg immediately identified some of them. Yeah, well, as, out, as you'd expect she would. Yes, pointing out that the Carolina allspice I'd actually bought at the Plant Trust sale, which I'd <laughs> oh, oops, and sort forgotten. of forgotten. <laughs> and, but I was left with two that are unnamed, and I thought, what better person to bring them to? Why bring Absolutely. a show Why Aren't bring a show and tell and I do the tell? I'll bring <laughs> yeah. a show and ask. Yeah, yeah. well, it's fair enough. And, and I'm pr- fairly sure I know what they are. One of them, if you rub the leaves... It has this sort of strange smell like peanut butter. Oh, absolutely it does. How yeah. bizarre. Oh, yeah. it is. Yeah. Now, as soon as you smell that, you know you've got a clerodendron. Oh, I thought you got a peanut butter plant. Well, you could call it that as well. Uh, so clerodendron, and I'm banking on this one being clerodendron chinensis, which has heads of flowers that look like double white hydrangea flowers, basically. It's perfumed, flowers in the summer, uh, and wants some shade. It uh, does well in shade, although it'll cope with a bit of sun. So um, it is slightly frost tender, but it tends to come up from the roots again and it will make a suckering thicket. Right. So, and I've got it growing quite well in the garden at Macedon. And every few years you cut it down because it gets sort of tall and, and a bit spindly and twiggy. And so you cut it down and start it off from fresh again. Well, if you can grow it, I can grow it. Oh, yeah, you should have no problems mm. growing that up your way. So that's Clerodendron chinensis. So uh, how much room does, is it going to take? It's, it's one of those things that suckers sort of sporadically, so it'll just pop up in odd spots. So it doesn't sort of need specific space, but it'll come up between plants and things, right. which can actually be quite useful because it can sort of tie a bed together mm, a bit mm. um, without swamping the things it's growing with. Uh, so I know I've, I started off with one plant that would have been smaller than the one you've bought in in the pot, and there's bits of it that have come up through a garden bed that would be three times the size of the studio. Uh, so I'm fairly certain that that came from Greg Boulderston. Yeah, well, it could have done. Oh. So, yeah, that's what that one is. And the other one I'm quite confident is um, Fasalis, the um, uh, ornamental Cape gooseberry. Fasalis alkekiana. And it has those lovely orange yes. uh, papery seed pods like Japanese lanterns. That's Fasalis with a PH. Yes, yes. Oh. Fasalis with a PH. And it's alkekiana, I think, A L K E K I A N A Y A or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that means look it up. (laughs) Yeah, and that probably does. Uh, And that's a sort of a suckering perennial, so you can end up with quite big drifts of it and it gets tiny little white flowers and then you get these gorgeous orange papery lantern things that are very good for dried floral work. So it's not going to want hot north wind, is it? No, no, it would want veggie garden type conditions, so moisture, a good open soil. um, And, uh, yeah, if you put it in too impoverished a spot, it'll just sit there and sulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you put in really good soil, it'll go off like a rocket and it'll be everywhere. Uh, so to find the actual intermediate sort of level is what you're trying to do with that plant. Well, you gave me a russ a while ago, which yes. you told me would run beautifully through my bed. Yeah. It's running beautifully through the driveway and it's ignoring <laughs> the bed. Ah, uh, dear, there you go. Yes, well, that, Completely what can I... ignoring the bed. Yeah, Easier path along the driveway. Yeah, that's right, exactly. It likes the gravel, obviously, <laughs> but what can I say? But the russ is a gorgeous thing. It's it a, is. A it's lovely. lovely. plant. Um, 
All right, so that's ID'd your two plants, which I'm quite chuffed about because sometimes people bring things in and you sort of go scratch your head and you think, oh, my God, I've no idea what that is uh, or well I done. should know what that is yeah, uh, but I can't remember uh, or whatever. So I feel quite uh, pleased that I've been able to deal with that and, quite and easily. And they fit reasonably well in with your woodland theme. Well, they do sort yeah. of. I yes. mean, the clerodendron could actually be a component of a woodland because it would grow in amongst all these other perennials without swamping them mm. and give a bit of height above them so it would be the next layer up. Yep. Um, and I actually have a great soft spot for the clerodendron genus, but there's only a handful of them that aren't tropical. Uh, so I did have so one. So a very good collection for somebody for plants. Yes, up. yes. I would love to see a clerodendron <laughs> collection out there. I've got three clerodendron species I grow in the garden at home, and I had a fourth one that I wasn't careful enough with and lost that I got from um, Bob Cherry up in New South Wales, which was called clerodendron griffithii, and it flowered at the ground like a, a ginger. Oh, so wow. it had all these stems that came up with leaves on, but the actual flowers were at ground level. Weird. And that I lost weird. it, and I'm really, really peeved with myself that I wasn't careful enough to get it going enough because I reckon I could have grown it if I'd kept it going enough, and I've never seen it again. Mm. Damn, damn. And I don't know where I would get it, and I know Bob sold his property up in New South Wales, and I don't know who lives there now and whether the plant's still there or anything. Mm. Uh, but he had some amazing things in that garden because he collected all over China and uh, Vietnam and what have you, and oh, his collection was just outrageous. Beautiful. Well, the lines are lighting oh. up now, so we should uh, get to Anne in Heidelberg. Good morning, Anne. Hi. Um, what I'm ringing about is my fig tree, mm. which is really beautiful specimen, I think. Everyone comments on how healthy it looks. Yeah. It's about five or six years old. And before the leaves came onto the tree... There were lots of figs on the branches. And um, anyway, now all the leaves have come and they're, they're really shiny and green. But there's only about three uh, figs left on all of the branches. Yeah, because the figs would have set too early and they weren't pollinated because you need the fig wasp to pollinate them. So I think they just dropped off because they weren't pollinated. But there, there aren't any on the ground. They would disappear very quickly when they hit the ground. Uh, unless you've got a possum or something that's come in and cleaned them off. I don't know. That's possible, I guess. Um, but uh, it's more likely they just fell off because they weren't pollinated. This oh. is this is the eating fig we're talking about. Yeah, it is. It's, mm. it's got a green skin rather than the, you know, the reddy coloured yeah. skin. There is... But, um, it, like every year, it's been so abundant. It's had so so much fruit, and I can't understand this yeah, year. Yeah, well, what... it's just the season. I would just be relaxed about it, and it will settle down and do its own thing in its own time, unless you have had a bush rat or a possum that's suddenly taken mm. a liking to mm. your fig tree, in which case you could have some issues because once they get a taste for something, they keep coming back, and so oh, you've mind. set up this cycle <laughs> that you then have to try and break somehow or another, uh, and it can be quite difficult to do. So the wasp mm. for the fig... Is, a, is in Australia. Oh, yes, yes. Mm. Uh, figs can, can be pollinated um, by the wasp, so uh, uh, you do need the wasp to be around, though. Well, figs, figs are the only um, plant that has the flower internal internally, and, mm. and the wasp does this comes in and fertilises yeah. And do you know it. it dies in the flower after it's fertiliser? Yeah, you're so eating you're actually dead eating dead wasps, exactly. Uh, yeah. and, well, protein. <laughs> and on figs, the big one, Moreton mm. Bay, has been in New Zealand for years and years and years and has all been propagated vegetatively because 
the, yeah, the, the fig wasp wasn't there, there for it. Yeah. And the fig wasp has turned up. Mm. And they figure it's probably been blown over on a storm. Yeah, as like as not. Can you just imagine the trouble we're going to get in a few years' time? Because when the Morton Bay fig becomes a weed, that's going to be a big weed. Mm. Mm. A seriously big weed. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, yeah, so hopefully that's answered or enlightened you a little bit, Anne. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess I've just got to chill out. And let yeah, it... just relax and see how it all goes. It may well mm. settle down, but if you have got a critter that's getting in there and taking those figs, then you might have a, an issue that will be hard to deal with. Mm. But then there'd be droppings, wouldn't there, around the tree if well, there was necessarily. that? Or... No. Uh, not necessarily. Um, you know, these things might come in, eat the few things that are there and go away to do their droppings. So you mm. might not find any obvious evidence of them. Okay. All right. I'll just uh, wait and see what happens. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Good luck, Anne. Thanks, Anne. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 All right. And let's go to Evelyn in Surrey Hills. Good morning, Evelyn. Oh, good morning, panel. Um, I have two questions. The first question to Stephen. Mm-hmm. Would you have the plant Anemonella palicoi? Well, I can't say that one, but it's shoals double. No. Uh, I've only got Anemonella thelectroides in its single form. Oh, okay. But I've got plants of that available, and I've got some more seedlings coming along. Um, Show stubble is a very hard plant to get, and as far as I know, nobody's growing it commercially. Uh, It is in the country, and a couple of the uh, collectors up in the Dandenongs, like my dear friend Otto, I think has got uh, show stubble, and I think um, Viv Condon has too. So a few people up in the Dandenongs have it. I as yet haven't got it out of them. Um, That's where I saw it. <laughs> yeah, and so I can't help you with the double, but I do have the little single pale pinky white one, and it's a charming little plant in its own right. Well, that will, that will be great. Yeah. Um, and the second question is, um, I have got really huge slugs in my compost. What am I doing wrong? Nothing. Just leave the slugs there. They're helping to rot down your compost. Okay, so they're okay because I wasn't sure. Yeah, no. Look, uh, people often get thingy about critters in their compost. You know, there's slaters in there. We need our there. decomposers. Yeah, and oh, yeah I, I get that. I've got all my other critters and my compost is fantastic. Yeah. I have, but I I've got sure huge slugs in my worm farm. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, that's weird. <laughs> uh, haven't they realised they're not worms? No. No, they <laughs> so, seem very happy. Yeah, and how but, the hell they got there, I don't know. Uh, well, some of these things you'll never find out the reason for, but there, certainly slugs in the compost heap aren't an issue. Slugs in the garden eating your seedlings off are an issue. But <laughs> so, in, yeah. in the compost heap, there's no real problems with them. Unless I actually transfer some of those slugs out into the garden. In which case, then you might have to deal with them later. But uh, yeah. uh, And it depends on what slug they are. I mean, some slugs don't eat plants. Some slugs eat dead stuff. Mm. Uh, so some are just there to eat decomposing material and not live plants. So they may actually be a fairly benign slug. Who knows? And, I mean, those big tiger slugs, those great vast mm. big ones, they don't go out and eat your plants in the garden. They, they'll eat the dog food out of the dog bowl mm. Mm. Uh, and they eat dead animals and dead things around the garden but they don't actually eat your plants and people spend a lot of time trying to kill them and it's a pretty disgusting thing to try and do yeah that's why i wanted to know because i thought i didn't want to kill something that's actually beneficial yeah they're certainly beneficial where they are yeah i think it is that 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 one that you're talking about the tiger slugs yeah if they're really big ones they're probably tiger slugs and they and they won't do any harm in the garden anyway oh great yeah and they are really hard to kill and it's really disgusting so don't go there no no (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll be up to the nursery to get that. Um, oh yes, little the little anemone, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> gorgeous little plant. Thanks so much. All right, bye. Good bye. on you, okay. Evelyn. Bye for now. Bye. All right, and we're going to Bernie in Langwarren. Good morning, Bernie. 
Good morning to you all. <clears throat> Pardon me. I have a salvia. Mm-hmm. It, it gives blue flowers like on a spike. Mm-hmm. My question is, should I cut those spikes off when it's finished flowering or are they the new leaves? No, cut them off. Yeah, most of the salvias, once they're flowered at the top, that's sort of it with those sort of ones. Mm. So, yes. yes, so cut the flowered stems out. Do you know which one it is? Uh, not really, just as salvia. Sel- salvia blue. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the blue one sends the flowers up in um, spikes rather than the um, red flowered salvia. Mm. Well, there's 900 species, so there's there's a few that are that are blue flowering. So um, yeah, just trying to think, you know, the Anthony Parker, is it? It's, yes. It's yeah, nice, nice it could be bog spike. sage because that also does the same Megan's thing. Megan's so. magic. Yeah, there's I've, a whole range I've of got sagittata, which has got the – it's blue, is so blue. It is just extraordinary. It's not, it's one of those things that, you know, you get these plants that are not terribly attractive in the plant, but the, the flower is just stunning. And the Sagittata, it's so blue, it's fabulous. Mm. Mm. Anyhow, so I think that answers your question, though. Just cut the stems out as they finish flowering. Yep. Okay. Secondly, if I may, please. Mm. Of course. Just quickly. Um, the um, lavender, the one that's uh, like a blue and has sort of ears at the top. Oh, oh, yes. Should I cut yeah. the flowers off? Um, you need to prune lavenders. All lavenders need pruning. If you don't prune them, you end up with something that gets very woody and leggy. So when they're finished flowering, <clears throat> I would go over the whole thing and take off. But when do you uh, know there is the like the um, flower go sort of grey? Yeah, the flower will go off. It'll lose its colour to a large extent. As soon as it starts to lose its colour, you know it's finishing, and that's probably a good time to give it a trim over. Okay. But you Can want to you pr- take cuttings from them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, lavender is very easy to strike from cuttings. Oh, I'll try that. And right, other, thanks very much. But the other thing, Bernie, is take off more than just the flower. Go further down than that. You yeah, don't go want back into oh, the yes, growth. I'll give them a reasonable haircut. Yeah. Yeah. But you yeah. never with lavender prune into dead wood. You prune into live. Yes, yeah, so if you go down to hardwood, uh, they don't reshoot properly. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you're right, with the daisies as well too. Yeah, yeah well, some of those, yes, those marguerite-type <laughs> daisy mm. bushes, if you go back into old wood in those, you normally kill them. So, yes, it's the same with lavender. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. On that, I have another show and tell, which is show and ask, my cantua. Mm. I have got two cantuas. I've got the yellow cantua and I've Mm. got the pink one, which is the pride of the Incas. Cantua, for those who don't know it, it's C-A-N-T-U-A. And as I said, it's called the pride of the Incas and it has a really beautiful bright pink flower. Mm. And it's on quite a leggy, shrubby plant. And mine is now at least five foot high. And the plant is revolting. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not a plant of any great elegance. It's sort of this wispy, weepy non-entity most of the year. So how hard can I prune it? Oh, you can prune cantua quite hard. Um, so could I take it down by two-thirds? Oh, yes, easily. Yeah, as soon as it finishes flowering, if you feel the need. Uh, I do feel the need. It's yeah. awful. Yeah, well, if, it looks, <laughs> if it's looking awful, I mean, you'll never make a great plant out of cantua. It's no. never going to be a, an, a particularly elegant specimen. It's one of those things you sort of nestle in amongst other plants and try and ignore as much as possible except well, when it, it's in bloom. It's a bit like grace mm. in that... You know, it, it, it gets its leaves right at the end of this long stem and it's mm. just really, really unattractive. Mm. But the flowers are stunning. 
But the flowers are absolutely beautiful, yeah. so I keep it. But yeah. no, okay, two-thirds yeah. of it goes. Yeah, straight after flowering, give it a really good haircut. I've got a big one in the nursery that I need to do that to as well, uh, and I keep forgetting. The problem is when it does go off flowering, you sort of try and ignore it, and that means you forget to prune it as yes, well. Yes. So mm. it's just one of those things. And, and it flowers on new wood, doesn't yeah. it? So, yeah. so I need so to do should, it immediately. Oh, yeah, straight after flowering, and that's something that people should be aware of. Most... Uh, late winter, spring, even into early summer flowering plants flower on the wood they produced the previous year. So if you want to refurbish the plants, you need to prune them straight after flowering so that they've got time to send out new growth so that they can then settle down and flower again the following season. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to prune them in the winter just before they flower. Yep. So so it's a a sort of a guiding principle if you're pruning your your flowering shrubs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now John wants to know why his young bok choy plants are coming into flower now. Because they're running up to seed. (laughs) Um, I never plant bok choy in the late winter, early spring because it's inclined to just run straight up to to seed. As soon as there's a couple of warm days. And so I wouldn't be planting or even thinking about planting it at that time of the year. I'd be putting it in in the sort of autumn and using it as a wintergreen vegetable if you like bok choy. Which I don't. Um, (laughs) Surely if you just let it go, though, it'll seed. And you'll, oh, yeah. get, and you'll get more plants. Yes, you could you could raise your own from seed. You don't necessarily have to buy other people's raised seedlings. So, yes. uh, in fact, some of those Chinese greens can be a little bit too generous with their self seeding. I, for one, for reasons unknown, years ago I planted chrysanthemum greens in the garden at home to give it a crack. Uh, and they tasted like mortine, so I wasn't overly <laughs> excited by them. And it took me about four years to get rid of them because they just kept coming up from seed all over the vegetable yeah. garden. And I thought, well, this is just sort of rubbing salt in the wound here. I not only don't like it, I can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did eventually get rid of it. And the, the only weedy vegetable I still struggle to main, uh, manage to get rid of and I haven't yet are those bloody purple potatoes, the the. Any potatoes just keep on going. Yeah, well, the purple Congos, though, because they get these tiny little. Oh, and you can't see them. You can't (laughs) see the tiny potatoes. So when you're lifting out the bigger ones and getting rid of them, all these little ones are dropping down like oxalis and they're coming up further and further afield. And it's driving me insane. And it's one of those plants I wish I'd never bought into the garden. And again, to add insult to injury, I don't think they're particularly tasty potatoes. Mm. You know, they're flowery and boring, I think. I've got potatoes as a weed in my vegetable garden. Mm. And, you know, my my vegetable garden is hip high. Yeah. And they're coming up from underneath. Yeah, Mm. so how do you get at those tubers? (laughs) I mean, I think the other thing about plants, you know, like bok choy going to seed, if you keep the water up to it, that Mm. is one way of just slowing that sort of, um, yeah, plant. Because as soon as a plant's stressed, you know, just those couple of warm spring days, you know, you haven't got out there and watered, um, yeah, plant's going to bolt to seed straight away. So I find if you keep the water up to it a bit more, um, again, it with the liquid help. seaweed, yeah, yeah it, it might actually help. And the other thing I do with coriander now mm-hmm. is that I get the seed and put it in a shady place because in, in winter I grow the coriander in a sunny place. But yeah. If you grow it in a – and coriander – do only grow from seed because if you grow it from little seedlings, oh, yeah. they will bolt. Yeah, mm. they just bolt mm. up almost so, straight away. So you need to grow them from seed and at this time of year you need to grow them in a fairly shady spot mm. and yeah. then you can have coriander. Yeah, so, I mean, autumn generally is the best for coriander, isn't it? I, I grow it right through. Do you? Yeah, I just change the place. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's no good. Nothing's any good in February. No. no. February's a month to kill. <laughs> 
not to be sitting inside in the air yeah, conditioning. D- yeah, drinking a gin and tonic or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now, um, yeah, so Stephen, a couple oh, more of your plants. Yeah, we've got, we've got right, a I've couple got a, minutes to go. All right, well. Chloranthus fortunii. Mm-hmm. I think it is elegance personified. I love that. It is a Chinese woodland perennial. It has dark stems that have got sort of bamboo-like nodes that run up the stems. And the top of the, le- the top of the stem has four leaves that sit in a circle, so it's like an Elizabethan rough. And then you get a spike that comes up through the middle of the leaves and you get these little droopy, dangly spikes of tiny white flowers. And it is just the most gorgeous plant. Uh, It's like all the other woodlanders, it likes a cool, moist aspect. It can grow perfectly happily in a pot. Um, And I imported this from Krug Farm Nurseries in Wales years ago. In fact, it was the I think I had the very last open permit where you were able to bring things in and then they would assess them once they came in um, as to whether they'd let you keep them or not. So I went nuts and bought all sorts of things that weren't on anybody's lists when nobody <laughs> knew what they were um, and the chloranthus was one of the things that came through and uh, I have to say it's got no potential as weeds or anything like that it's just a very delicate little plant uh, but because it's such a weird genus that nobody knows much about I don't even think it's on the icon list so I don't think I'd be able to even bring it in now mm. uh, without getting it assessed and getting it yep. onto the lists um, and it's a charming plant and, and fortuitously I imported a particularly good form with really nice dark stems. Some of the chloranthuses I've seen since have got pale coloured stems and are nowhere near as exciting. Um, So chloranthus, which is spelt C-H-L-O-R-A-N-T-H-U-S, chloranthus fortunii, and it's a really lovely Chinese woodlander. So there you go. And it's now time to stop, I think. It is, yes. We have uh, reached the end of our show today. Narelle, um, I'm sorry we don't have time to answer your question, but I'll answer it next week. Um, You have been listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Big thank you to Stephen Ryan and Virginia Hayward and also to Louise for banning our phones. So until next week, may all your gardens be habitat gardens. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.